Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and joining me for today's roundtable discussion are my delightful co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. And hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. I, I must say it's delightful to have uh, to have you both back uh, to do a roundtable together. Um, I've missed it over the last several months, and it's good to be back with you. So, um, in this in in the spirit of that kind of genuine openness, I'd like to introduce our topic for today, which is actually openness. Uh, I've recently uh, begun working with a company called The World Table, where the purpose. Uh, of the company is to encourage open, genuine conversations on the internet. And that led me to thinking about what we actually mean by openness and how it affects us and and why we might shy away from it. So I'd like to throw it out for discussion. What does openness mean to you and why might you practice it? So the st- focusing on the positive aspects of it for right now, what does openness mean to you guys? John, first of all, this is a wonderful question, and I had a lot of fun with myself exploring it. And for me, openness means very simply being a lot in alignment with my highest self. And it means owning who I am and being comfortable in my own skin. And I have, when I'm open, I have a sense of fearlessness. And the reason I might practice this is because openness for me feels so good and it feels true and it's empowering. It also means being your own person. So you're responsible and accountable for your life. And all this to me sounds like great stuff. If that appeals to you, if you're interested in those qualifiers. Yeah. So I I like the sense that, uh, that you, a whole bunch of what you said, but in particular, um, the sense that you, by choosing to be open, you own 
yourself and your life and you, you are accountable for yourself and your life. Does that, is that a, a strong piece of it for you? Oh, definitely. That's, I would say that's the anchor point. The peace of mind part is knowing that I'm in alignment with my highest self when I'm open. The anchoring points are being responsible and accountable for my own life. Wow, that's great. Hi, C, how about you? Why might you practice openness? What does it mean to you? Well, openness creates a sense of lightness. And it, it makes me think of, you know, if you are in a house in a dark room and you suddenly throw the windows open so that the light can come through the windows or it's stuffy and you open all of the windows and doors and suddenly there's air and, and circulation of air and, and a sense that I can breathe more deeply, breathe more cleanly. That to me is the feeling of openness. And so there's that sense of when we allow openness, we get to feel lighter. We don't feel like we're bearing the weight of the world on our shoulders. We don't feel the heaviness of all of the things we worry about and stress about. And it, it's refreshing and, and kind of enlivening the same way that opening those doors and windows takes the stuffiness away and makes it feel as if energy and air is circulating again. So openness makes it feel as if life is circulating within us and around us rather than feeling stuck or weighed down by life. Yeah, I think I get a similar kind of feeling of of lightness. But I also get this feeling of free fall. You know, I I not quite vertigo, but it's like flying but you're but not sure that I'm going to be stable while I'm flying in this, you know, while I'm, while I'm existing in this open state. And that brings me to the notion of the fears that come up when we try to be open or when confronted with a situation where openness, you know, how openness might generate fear or the attempt to be open with another might generate fear. Any thoughts about the fear that comes along with openness? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> you were going to ask that question. <laughs> um, but I really liked when you were describing how you felt that that free fall, because as you were describing that, I, I also have a sense of that when I'm being really open. And also, it's a sense of expansiveness. But once again, you don't know which way it's going to go. So, <laughs> yeah, right. In terms of fear, when I went to look at myself when I'm in a challenging or threatening situation, my fears, I have... I think I have three main ones. One is having great intentions, but being misunderstood. Um, The second one is giving everything, you know, being so open, but at the same time being so vulnerable, I set myself up for the potential of being rejected. Hmm. And then being a Leo with the sword in the paw, uh, that's an area of sensitivity for me, I can get very hurt. You know, coming with really good intentions, wanting all, only the best. So being misunderstood, being rejected, being hurt. And as I was exploring this, what also came to, came to me is, you know, is it possible to move through this fear by not focusing on being misunderstood or rejected or being hurt and simply saying to myself, well, maybe it's how I'm presenting myself or presenting the information. It has nothing to do with being open. I have an opportunity to develop the art of presentation so that I minimize the possibility of being misunderstood, being rejected, or being hurt. Huh. 
Well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so the the vulnerability piece, I, I don't I don't think there's anything we can. I mean, for me, if I'm going to be open, like h- how is it possible to be open and not allow yourself to be vulnerable? Or maybe it's about being being strong enough that your vulnerability isn't really um, something to be afraid of or something to to guard. Is that is it possible that one can be open and vulnerable and not in danger? You know, John, that's a great question. Myself, I think part of being open is, is setting yourself up to be vulnerable, but then it goes into the realm of what are your expectations? So are you able to show up in an open way, understand that that's your job, you have no control over how people respond to you, and practice detachment, which will ultimately give you strength. Yeah, that's kind of where I was. That's kind of where I was threading. Is is this? You can be vulnerable without being. Uh, you know, you can be genuine and and open and vulnerable without feeling like there's danger, as long as you're not attached to how somebody responds to you or reacts to you. Hi, C. What do you think? Uh, well, I, 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 one of the words that I had also thought of was vulnerability. I think that's something that fear that that um, people are afraid of most. And uh, you know, just like people don't leave their doors open and unlocked, they lock the door, you know, because of a fear of who might come in or what might come in. Um, so I think that one of the biggest fears or one of the biggest impediments to openness is that that vulnerability and I think tied into that and this is probably a word that in in some ways reflects what you were talking about is also um, fear of the unexpected you know when when you have an openness you don't exactly know what might happen or how somebody might respond to something or who might come in or what it might look like and People, you know, so there it's a fear of loss of control or not being in control, but it's the need to shift that attitude that it's, it's, you know, not being in control isn't something to necessarily be afraid of. And if we can open ourselves to the possibility of whatever might come or however something might look or how somebody might respond, meaning we have to truly listen rather than wait to hear the script we've run in our head. So we're open to the dialogue rather than closed to anything we don't want to hear or don't expect to hear because we're afraid we won't know how to respond or we won't, we won't be happy with it. Um, so to me, I think that's where that where, where a lot of the fear of openness comes from is vulnerability and fear of the unexpected and a fear of not feeling as if either I'm in control of the situation or the fear of I'm not going to know what to do if something happens that I haven't planned for or written the script for. Mm. Yeah, so the possibility that we might be misunderstood and the possibility that the outcome might be unexpected. Um, Or we might not get what we want. Yeah, and and I think all these things have, uh, they, they have something in common, which is really comes down to the expectation of what it means to be safe in our walk in the world, right? I mean, if you if you are if you have a sense that you're you're going to be okay, 
no matter what happens, then you can be open and vulnerable and not worry that something might something bad might happen. Uh, you know, the example you cited, if you leave your door unlocked because you really have nothing to protect, there's nothing, there's nothing that's worth so much to you that you need to keep it locked up, then you're, then you can be totally open, right? Now, is that, is that possible or likely as, you know, in our psyches that we could be that open, that we could be open enough to not worry about being hurt? Well, yes, it certainly is possible. It takes a lot of work on our own part, a lot of cultivation, um, you know, a lot of letting go of things like expectation or the worry that somehow we're not going to be happy or we need something to be happy or satisfied or for things to feel the way that we want them to be versus just being present with what is. And allowing that to be okay, having a sense of acceptance for that. Mm. So, uh, so in terms of how we navigate the world uh, and, and keeping in a state of openness, what are some of the key things that that you each lean on to sort of keep you in that place of openness? And do you and do you try to keep yourself in that state of openness as much as possible, or are there only certain circumstances where you think that's appropriate? Well, John, being open for me, I really like how it, how it feels. It, it simply feels really, really good. So you probably want to be in that state as much as possible. Exactly, because I tried the other side of the coin. I tried walking in the world another way, and it really only made me feel restricted and conflicted. Mm. So as I see used the word, I believe, earlier, rejuvenating. So I had I have explored that also. So for me, being open, it feels fantastic. It feels very fresh, and it feels like a very rejuvenating way to walk through life. So that's my big driver. It just simply feels good to be open. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I was looking at is in order to be in that state of openness, you need to trust something. So you might as well choose to trust yourself. Oh, there you go. Okay. And then... When you're in a state of openness, what I found is what the other vibration that comes in is your innate curiosity starts to blossom Mm -hmm. because you're not catering to your fears. Things are very open and you become very curious about life. And from that state of curiosity, you start looking at things from a perspective of that's interesting and you move away from judging anything. So Mm -hmm. everything becomes a curiosity, it becomes very interesting. So you can see how that fresh, rejuvenating energy starts to thrive. And then for the fifth thing that I would probably lean on to help keep me in a state of openness is patience. (laughs) (laughs) With, with, With yourself, with others, with the circumstances, patience in what dimension? Patience in the context that Whatever, if there's something that doesn't make sense, you know, if there's something in a free fall, to have the patience to and the discipline to understand that things will unfold and the answers will be provided. Ah, right. So really, if you're if you're in that place of openness, I believe that you're beyond space and time, and patience 
is a vibration that can be very useful because you realize, that, well, it's just a question of space and time. The right, answer is right, coming to me. Right. Might as well stay open. Right. right. So I don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. So you use patience to allow your physical self that exists in space and time to hang with the circumstances until that which is happening outside space and time comes home to roost. Yes. Yeah, I like that. I see. What do you do to stay open? And, and how often do you want to be open? How much of your life do you want to be in that state? Uh, well, a couple of things that I think are really important to openness uh, are being quiet and being still. And um, being still means not feeling as if we always have to be doing something. We can stop. We can observe. We can simply be with without feeling that we need to be taking action or fixing something or adjusting something or figuring something out. Sometimes just being still and being with it and allowing it to reveal itself can be more important. Of course, that means it may reveal itself differently than the way we thought it would or Mm. expected it to. But if we can stay in a place of acceptance and say, I'm going to work with how it reveals itself rather than needing it to appear or manifest in a certain way in order for me to take advantage of it, interact with it, believe it, be happy with it. Yeah. Um, and, and being quiet means we also don't always have to know what to say. We can learn how to just listen. We can learn that it's okay to say, I don't know, which I think is one of the greatest states of openness, to say, I don't know, rather than fearing that someone or something is going to think that we are somehow inferior for not knowing whatever it is. Uh, And we don't have to have the reply. We don't have to have the last word. We don't have to have the argument. We don't have to even engage with a response or reaction to something mm-hmm. versus let us just be quiet. And a lot of times you'll find like if somebody is in an argument, if somebody doesn't speak, it quickly diffuses the situation and people are able to take a breath. People either, and whether it means people calm down and can now engage in conversation rather than argument, or whether it means the person who was initiating the argument gets frustrated and turns around and walks away either way you've allowed the situation to dissipate and you have cut off the the experience of being in an argument because you chose not to engage in that you were just quiet yeah yeah and and quiet not in a not in a passive aggressive way but quiet in an open way well right because quiet means you know when to speak but also you know when to listen and when to not speak um, and and that's very different than like passive aggressiveness. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that that for me makes me un, uncomfortable being open is the idea that I might disappoint someone uh, or not meet their expectations. And so for me to get to, to for me to stay open is really. Uh, a battle uh, with that most often. And what do I do for that? I guess self-love is the, is the key thing for me is uh, to allow that I am who I am and 
if that's not good enough for someone for whatever reason, that's not what they want or what they expect, I have to be okay with that. And so it's a process of being okay with being myself independent of what someone else might conclude or how they might react or what their expectations might be for me and about me. And that does take, that takes work, that, that consistent return to presence of self-love and self-accountability. That's a big deal. It, it, it does take work. Uh, any other thoughts you guys want to share on being open? Uh, as you were speaking, what occurred to me in terms of openness is it takes courage. Yeah. To be open. And I find myself sometimes being open is natural as natural as water flowing in a brook. I'm not even aware of it. It's my natural state. But there are times when there's a price to being open. And before I step forward, I need to be okay with my higher self and trust myself that I'm going to be willing to pay that price. Right. You're willing willing to hold yourself in the presence of the consequences of being open in that moment. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Hi, C. What about you? Any thoughts? I would just suggest seeing what it's like to just sit and be quiet when other people are talking and be open to hearing what they're saying rather than lost in your own thought of what it is you think you need to say or add to the conversation because we often miss much when we do that. So that's what I would suggest is maybe just a little exercise people can do very easily um, uh, in in their lives just to see what the experience is like, how it's different for them when they're open to listening to the conversation rather than feeling they have to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, I like that. Listening with the intention of understanding as opposed to with the intention of responding. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, uh, I want to I want to thank you both for uh, a very lovely uh, reunion roundtable conversation here on Convergence. And invite our audience to stay tuned for the rest of the show. It's going to be a good one. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great show, John. Thank you. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me today for Spirited Conversation is my guest, Marianne Lin. Born and raised in Germany, Marianne discovered the seeds of yoga, meditation, and bodywork during extensive travel in Asia. She's been studying and practicing yoga and meditation for more than 20 years. Her study of Tai Chi and Qigong has also deepened her awareness of and connection to the presence of the universal life force energy. Her asana teaching draws from the essential elements of many great teachers, as well as from her own experience as a body worker and from her study of the nature of mind. Marianne, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm 
so uh, happy and um, pleased to be here. Well, I'm pleased to have you here. I, uh, for those of you who haven't met Marianne, and I know many of you haven't, uh, I met Marianne at Ocean Yoga in Pacifica, which is a beautiful place. I love it there. And Marianne's class is a particular uh, delight to participate in. And uh, on Saturday mornings, you also do a meditation That's class. Correct. Eight eight a.m. Mm-hmm. Eight till eight forty-five. It's a donation-based uh, uh, meditation practice. Everybody welcome. Yeah, and that class in that class you help us focus on a variety of things, including breath work. Yes. And in your yoga class, you focus on, or not? It's not necessarily focus, but it's something that that you introduced to me that I'd never heard of, which was the bandhas. Mm-hmm. Right, and so this led me to um, to wonder what more I could learn from you about breath work. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to I want to spend a lot of time in our conversation talking about breath work. But first, I want to talk about yoga. Okay. Uh, when? How did you get connected to yoga? When did you get connected to yoga? I uh, did get into yoga in my first ten uh, day meditation retreat. That was in the beginning of the 90s in Thailand, a small, well-known by now, many, many um, teachers that are now the mindfulness teachers in America have actually been at that same uh, temple, mm-hmm. what Swan Mok. Swan Mok. In southern Thailand. Mm-hmm. And uh, Westerners can go there once a month, they offer 10-day silent uh, Buddhist meditation and I was traveling back then a lot every year for a few months and wow. when I heard about this place I immediately knew I had to go even so it was the wildest thing at this place in my time what I could doing <laughs> at that time I was actually driving a, a, a taxi in, in Berlin at night time so, so I had a completely different schedule of my life I would drive at night times and coming to this monastery, we would get up in the morning at four o'clock. That was often the time where I would go to bed. <laughs> right, so it right. was really everything was upside down and I was had a huge struggle with the sitting and the concentration. And partially also I realized that my back was extremely weak. Oh. I was simply not strong enough to sit upright without leaning into mm-hmm. something which mm-hmm. we usually do we sit on chairs right? right right and even so in my younger years we used to sit on the floor but i was pretty soon leaning on one elbow or it just just right. didn't have a strong back and so that i noticed that in the medi- in the meditation by the afternoon i was just like yearning for a bed mm. but then we had um yoga in the morning like 6 a.m. which was insane and it was whoever wanted to come and so I, I joined it and I immediately realized that was extremely helpful for my sitting practice. It gave me energy. Ah. It helped me. I mean, everybody goes to yoga nowadays and that good feeling is often really right there after the first class. Yeah. But that inside that it would actually be beneficial for me to do yoga, for me to be more at ease was sitting in meditation. That's what really brought me to yoga. So you were, why were you interested in meditation? I, I mean, you're a taxi driver in Berlin. You're on the right. night shift. Why are you interested in meditation? <laughs> I, 
I, traveling for me broad, as you actually said at the beginning, it it was for me opening up into new dimensions. And I'm truly convinced that I've been living in the monastery before. Ah, uh, previous life. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it, but in the moment I heard about that, that you can go into this te- into this monastery and 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 stay for ten days, I I knew I needed to go. I mean, I just knew. Wow. And so I did, and and I could have stayed there for months, no problem. Oh, really? Okay, so <laughs> so your first couple of days were hard, and the yoga it was, helped. It was really hard to the sitting, yeah. you know, because you were sitting in the middle of the room, and uh, in Buddhist monasteries, you're not allowed to take your feet, show your feet to the front, because that's where the Buddha is and where the teacher are, the feet are always we need to be moved away. My knees were bothering, my back was bothering me. And I was just not used to sit so many hours during the day uh, uh, without leaning against a chair or something. And and was the was most of the day sitting? And, no, and it was actually, uh, later on I did some other meditation retreats where we do only sitting. Mm. But that was a mix between walking and sitting meditation. And was it all silent? And did you was there anything about the silent meditation that profoundly affected you or I mean like I, I always wonder, I've never done a an extensive silent meditation retreat, but I can imagine that it would be very interesting, you know, what might happen. Well, you say that it's interesting to say at least, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I did not have any difficulty with that being quiet you know but i could see other people who were hard time being quiet and, and, and they like to talk to each other and <laughs> still up to today i meet people who think that is their greatest challenge i'm naturally an inward oriented person so being silent is is, is not a big deal for me at all and and in, so did you get it did you was there any revelation that came from silence I think I think in my first meditation retreat I don't recall anything. Um I mean I was very very I got a lot of energy from the from in the evening there was always a dharma talk. Mm. So it was actually the only time where we heard somebody speaking mm-hmm. and it was always almost bringing like a certain high feeling to me just being involved with the teaching and hearing the teachings and after having been quiet and having no no input other than being in nature, you know, you heard the sound of the birds and the geckos. There was always a few geckos living in the meditation hall. Um, and then you heard, and you hear the mosquitoes that try to bite you. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was really, really peaceful. And it was really being, the, the, even the meditation hall was wide open. There was a roof, but it was like sitting out in nature. And it oh. was really profound, the connection with nature and the stillness that spoke through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, connection and communion with nature is very powerful yes. for me. Uh, and I think for most people when they uh, eventually... Uh, find their way to nature and spending time in nature. It, it does something very, very sweet and nurturing mm-hmm. for the body and it for brings, the spirit. It gives it gives you and it gives to me a feeling of being at home. Being, yeah, being 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 also whole and part of it. You know, even in the fierce 
nature when it gets stormy and yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful you know i i think this uh it's interesting that you bring this up a friend of mine is just going through wrestling with with what is home for her mm-hmm. and and I am also um in this sort of nomadic mode in my life and you know I, for a long time I was curious about what is my home where is my home what is the nature of home yes. and then one day I realized oh ah uh, planet earth is home I'm I'm home when I'm on earth and the way I feel that most profoundly, the way I can recognize and register that, is when I'm in nature. Because when I'm in nature, there's no artificial story mm-hmm. between me and my real home, mm-hmm. right? It isn't mm-hmm. defined by, you know, what room I'm in, mm-hmm. you know, or what address I'm at, mm-hmm. or where my car is. It's like, oh, I'm with the trees and the dirt right. and the right. ocean and or whatever's there. And that feels like home. So when you were traveling... Can I say one more thing oh, about yeah. the home? Mm-hmm. Because I am not American, as you probably can hear from my accent. <laughs> right. so this is not my home. And in the same time, being German, I never really felt quite home, even in my own country. Oh. So it's kind of homeless, right? It's not homeless as we know it nowadays. Mm. But... You know, the whole question about what is home for me and how and where do I feel home and where do I feel at ease, you know, it's something I've been in in a search for. I mean, part of my long travel was about finding a place where I could, what I could call home. I was just wondering, is that one of the reasons you were traveling? Yeah, yeah. I mean, traveling was for me an eye-opening for my small little German mind that I was raised in, you know, because it exposed me so to many different cultures and and practices and beliefs and what people do and don't do, which is, it, it just really expanded my mind to, well, there's a whole lot more than the, the world that we are raised in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else did you see when you were traveling? Where else did you go? I I went to uh, South America a little bit. I went to Cuba, to Colombia, Venezuela, a little bit in in, in Europe. How, how much of Asia did you explore? I didn't. I, I just went to India, to Thailand, to uh, Vietnam, to China. Just. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's a, that's a, quite a nice. Uh, the interesting thing is that. Uh, you know, the longer I traveled, the the more I could see how big the world really is because you hear about so many different places you never heard about before. Mm. And it's just I realized one lifetime is not enough, you know, to to see everything. And at the same time, I realized traveling is not really that what I where I can find what I'm seeking. Uh, and I think that right. brought me then into. Uh, meditation, you know, and uh, first it was meditation, then it became yoga, and then it became body work, but they were all very closely related. So, so you were, so what made, what brought you to meditation? What was the, what, what was the trigger to, to... I was just traveling throughout Thailand with my boyfriend at that time, and uh, we had heard about a place, this, this, uh, Swan Mok that you could go there and meditate, and I just needed to go. 
Uh, so it was a spontaneous realization that this was yeah. for you. I think I did actually have some previous experiences in Germany, but that was more like on the basis of Christian meditation, mm. which was I wasn't so fond of that that part of spirituality. Mm. I was raised as a Christian, and where were you raised? In Germany. In Berlin. No, in a small town near Frankfurt. Ah, and. How, Very small. How did, what did the, uh, I, I actually never had the opportunity to ask somebody who lived through this experience, what was it like when the Berlin Wall came down? You were there. Right? I was, I was there, yes. It was, um, it, it was, it was very emotional for Germans. And, you know, you may know they are not necessarily the most emotional people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. But it was, because it was so surprising, because nobody had known, known, woke up in the morning and turned the radio on and the wall was open and that was like you know i still get goosebumps just thinking about it mm. right and i think there was a high enthusiasm and very a lot of joy and and a lot of tears is i saw a lot of germans just crying out of joy and surprise wow it was powerful that must have been quite something yes very <laughs> interesting okay so so yoga um what so what did what did yoga do for you? Why why did you because it made you feel good? But then what? Well, I did realize it made me quickly more aware of my body, and even so, most meditation and that particular practice of meditation was focusing a lot on the breath. Oh, it was right away. Right. Yes, and which I found extremely difficult. What was difficult about it? Because, well, after that, then I became a yoga teacher pretty quick and and did it very rapidly. And Why did practiced. you choose to teach yoga? Because I found that the doorway into becoming aware of the body was for me easier than to be with my breath. Because breath is more subtle than body. Mm-hmm. And I found it was... You know, even within my yoga practice in the beginning, I wasn't, uh, I had a hard time with the breath in meditation. And I had also in the beginning a hard time with the breath practicing yoga. So I think the natural way is to, is go from, from, from cross to more subtle. And the body is easier to feel and, and, and sense than, than the breath. Yeah, so I want to talk about this some more. Um, that you, you decided to, to teach yoga, not just do yoga. Was that because you, you felt like it was a, a place to make a living or because it was a vocation, a calling? What it, was it? it was, I was, um, because I was still traveling at that time. Hmm. But my tr- my way of traveling had tremendously changed. Like from the first few years I just wanted to go one day and then move to the next place so after many years of traveling I had the the urge to go somewhere and spend longer time in the country and to do something Mm -hmm. rather than just be a visitor and being a tourist which was to be really more emerging into into the culture and so then I wanted to do wanted to study yoga and did you study it just happened that I had a American boyfriend at that time, and so he was the reason why I came to America and didn't go to India. Oh, because I had been to India before, where I did study yoga and went to different sites in in India, 
um, and I was wanting to go back there and study yoga, but then I wanted to, he lived in New York City and I lived in Berlin, so I chose to come here mm. instead of going to India. And then I found the Iyengar Institute here in San Francisco. That was the reason why I came to America. And why the Iyengar? Why Iyengar yoga? What was that? At that time, I already had done uh, Shivananda yoga, which is usually uh, the practice or the teaching is like one month teacher training. Um, I wanted to learn more about the body. Uh-huh. And, and, and Iyengar yoga is very precise in, in alignment and I uh, wanted to learn about that and I wanted to do more teacher training and at that time they were offering uh, one year teacher trainings for people, for students abroad that come here and could do the teacher training in one year instead of two. Oh, wow. And that brought me into the Bay Area. Okay, so so yoga... There's so much that goes on in the body when when you're doing yoga, and I Frank I like a, a yengar as well because it seems like there's the the magic is in the details mm-hmm. somehow uh, the perfection or the the precision, uh, precision mm-hmm. of alignment does something different than just I'll say it this way going through the motions. Yes. Right. So the vinyasa flow style yogas. Are interesting. They're they're useful exercise, but they're not. They don't lock me in to this higher level of awareness. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that is that am yes. I yes. on the right trail here? You, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's correct because it 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 is the words and the actions and the precise alignment in the Iyengar Yoga that has the student to go inward and feel it and see it and 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 make it happen. Which is in vinyasa flow. It's it's really more about the movement. Mm. Okay, so uh, this is the, I guess this relates then back to the body awareness mm-hmm. that that with yengar with precise alignment with the direct directive to find more precise alignment. We are bringing our awareness into a, a honing our awareness of our of our experience of our body. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why does that feel so satisfying? What is it? Why? I mean, it's very, very satisfying to me to... It can also be for students the opposite because it takes, again, uh, the willingness and the and, and the and the uh, ability to want to go within, which is often not so much where we are now, the way we live. We just want to move and go and run and mm. Fast, yeah. Um, but for me, it was really more. It was a lot of the way the way I teach, still teach, and have been teaching for many years now, is based on what I am experiencing through my own yoga practice. Mm-hmm. And I have come to see all these misaligned ways how I sit. Right, right, right. Or how right. I stand. Mariana's doing postures now that are not healthy. <laughs> For those of you who can't see. And, and and we all do these things, you know, and often without knowing. Why do we do them? Because we're not strong? Uh, I think a lot of our patterns we have adapted in early childhood from whoever we saw, whoever was around us. I've seen a lot of fathers and sons, for instance, where 
the five-year-old son has almost the same body posture, especially with his little bit on the line, one shoulders higher up, or leans over, mm-hmm. and, and 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 even there is he's only five or four-year-old, so he already has adapted. He's mirroring. So we're yeah. adapting physical patterns, not not only we're adapting any other emotional and mental patterns and beliefs from from early childhood, from, yeah, we, our, from get, our parents, from from society, from our culture. We get the whole download. Yep. Mm, interesting. Right. Interesting. Um, okay. So, when in yoga, we're always uh, invited to bring attention to our breath. Why are we invited to bring attention to our breath? Because just as we have patterns, dysfunctional patterns within the body, we have the same dysfunctional patterns within the breath. And bringing attention to the breath. What what does that do for us? What what is it that we're harnessing when we bring attention to the breath? Well, first of all, we're going to learn to see in what patterns we breathe, and if those patterns are actually helpful, or if they're giving us energy, or if they're slowing us down, or they're making us depressed, or they're making us too excited. So, it is how we feel. It is how we breathe. So. It, um, did I hear this correctly? That it's possible for our our breathing patterns to actually be a source of depression. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's let's say that again. It's possible for our breathing patterns to be a source of depression. It's not the only source, but a contributing factor. Yes. Right. We have an epidemic of depression in this country. Well, we have an epidemic of people who are sitting all day. <laughs> who's sitting and having their heads either knocked down on their chest because they're looking into a device, right? Right, right. right. Or they're having a, a terrible body posture of rounded upper body, rounded back, upper back, and so the chest concaves in. Mm-hmm. That physical posture will have a negative in- impact on the openness of the flow of the breath. Then we have to, in order to still see straight, we have to Just take the head up. up. Yeah. So it's 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 like it's 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 a pattern, uh, a, a continuous pattern of one thing leads to, the, to leads to the other. And how does it how does it how does it how does a negative um, breathing pattern contribute to depression? When we slump on when we our chest is not open we have a we have a physical restriction in taking a full and a deep breath mm. if we don't breathe fully then we don't get enough oxygen into our body but the yogis they're not only referring to the oxygen which is more like a western thing they talk also about prana mm, which is where i wanted to go next. i knew that <laughs> <laughs> okay so on that note let's take a short break and when we come back i want to talk about prana okay okay we'll be right back you're listening to convergence with host john carousella on firefly willows l-i-v-e Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. (laughs) 
Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, in Spirited Conversation with Marianne Lin. So, Marianne, before the break, we were talking about healthy breathing and, and oxygenation as a partial antidote for depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned something that it really wasn't necessarily just about the oxygen. It was about the prana. prana. Okay. Prana. So, what is prana? Well, prana is actually often translated as vital life force. And pranayama means? Well, hold on. (laughs) Okay. Well, prana is actually that force that makes everything, gives everything vitality. Without prana, there would be no life. Okay. Prana is way more important than oxygen. Sounds weird. It, it's well. It sounds intriguing. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. talk about that. Mm-hmm. What? How does it differ from from oxygen? I think we also don't know quite as much about this in our Western world because we can't. Most of us have no sense what it feels like or what it looks like because we can't touch it easy. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't see it with our five senses. So we have not paid attention to it. Hmm. And so usually we believe what we don't see doesn't exist. We have that tendency in the Now, there was Uh this huge experiment or this huge study in Switzerland that that completed recently where they actually spent billions and billions of money to prove prana now exists officially in the scientific world. Really? Yes. Okay. But the yogis said that 3,000 years ago. <laughs> so that'll be an interesting study to take a look at, I, I imagine. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually very interested in in understanding the uh, the nature of this uh, ephemeral substance, even if you can call it a substance, that is prana or chi. Are, are, they, are prana and chi the same thing? Every culture, every every older culture has a name for energy or prana mm-hmm. for life energy yes. yeah and yeah. i have this i i notice that it's possible to in you know i don't know if this is something that you've experienced in your qigong practice or whatever uh but i have felt it mm-hmm. in between my hands you know that the whole idea mm-hmm. of building a chi ball and, and yes so uh, so there's this this it's it's palpable. It's tactile. It's you, one can sense it. Right. Let's let's do an experiment. We can all take our hands and rub them really, 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 really briskly. And then it creates heat. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. if you do that a little bit, you can definitely feel how the warm the hands warm up. Right. And then you're gonna have the hands like about a foot or so apart, twelve, 12 fourteen inches, and you ha- have your hands and your fingers very soft and very loose. And you focus on the area between the palms. And then even moving the hands a little bit closer and a little bit put apart. Pulling them a little closer and pulling them apart. You can feel the energy, how you actually stretch the energy in between. So that's I, a very easy way. It's a very and it's and it's once you once you experience it you it the curiosity, you know, Starts, is triggered, yes, right? And you right. wanna just explore this more and more. I have this standing question, uh like my physicist mind asks this question: What is the viscosity of chi? I think chi adapts. Ah, uh, so it doesn't have a fixed viscosity. No, no. 
it has different different types of energy. Mm. Like, let's come back to yoga. When we talk about a, a type of energy in the body, we can go into the belly, the area behind the navel area, mm. where the yogis talk about fire, mm-hmm. which is a form of energy. And there's practices that we want to do to actually cultivate and increase the fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Chinese medicine, for instance. You know, I used to, in my practice, I used to actually, before even practicing Qigong, we would actually stand there and pull life force into my belly using our mind mm. and using our intention to visualize on the inhale pulling using, life force and using the breath as a yes. as a right right as a vehicle a vehicle they often talk in yoga that the the that prana uh the breath rides on prana so the breath with the with the lengths of your inhale or the lengths of your exhale you can change prana and does, and prana has different uh different characteristics there. Yes. It's, it's but let's go back right now for that inhale and exhale. Hmm. So depending if you are making your inhale longer has a different effect as if you're working and making and extending your your exhale. So when your exhale is longer it means you're breathing out more. Breathing out means you're letting go. Just like as we breathe out, we let go of all the gases that don't mm. we don't need. Right. And as we inhale, we pull in oxygen, but we also pull in prana. So if we so wanna... when you breathe in, then you've become more energetic. Energetic, you have more energy. And if you're focusing more on lengthening your breath out, then it makes you more restful and more peaceful. So these are very different, distinct ways. To, to use our 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 breath in wanting to generate the kind of energy that is suitable for the actions that we want to do. So if you want to go to bed, you're not going to focus on your inhale because you want to calm and soothe mm. your body and your right. nervous system. Right. So you're practicing then in a prolonged exhale. So I have a very specific question that maybe you have an answer to, maybe you don't. Um, I've been working outside doing a lot of yard work lately. Um, heavy, long days, heavy lifting. And so my muscles are sore. My back is, you know, I've I just been like working out really hard. Um, what's the, what do I want to do to, to loosen that all up? Is that, do I want to focus on the exhale? That's a good question because your muscles are tight. Right. You get a massage. <laughs> Take a bath, uh-huh. right? Stretch, mm-hmm. relax. Mm. It's, it's it's a bunch of things. It's not only just like one thing, right? right? But right. really, like if you worked physically hard, or you know, also we have on on one one end also the epidemic of people now working out like maniacs, right? right? right. Going to the right. gym, right. they running marathons after the other, or they're getting really extremes in those things, or biking or whatever, or running, right? And um because I am a body worker, I 
been doing that for like almost 20 years and I I see a lot of tension in people. So mm-hmm. people get tension from doing too much, whatever it is. They, but, but they also become tight and have tight muscles from, from not doing anything. So mm-hmm. it's mental stress. Oh, right. Yeah. If you don't do anything, then you're, the muscles that are responsible for holding you in whatever position you're in get. Right, right. So breathing, breathing, I don't think that breathing will get rid of your tight muscles. I don't know. You, you would maybe want to try, but yeah, you would have to yeah. try it for a while and you have to be consistent and then you, know, you have to see what difference it does make. Well, so this, this brings me to an, another thought. And we talked about, we touched on this a little bit when you talked about yoga. Um, I do use breath as a way to bring attention literally to places inside my body, the mm-hmm. way the way things feel. And it's a, it's a way for me to help identify the nature of the pain I'm feeling and also the nature of resistance that I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't know if I don't know if it's if it's clear what I mean by resistance, but it, it could be like anything from, you know, my hamstrings are too tight, right, mm-hmm. to do a full forward fold, or, uh, you know, there's some catch in a physical motion, a stretch, or or something, but also resistance to some circumstance in my life, you know, for somebody it might be a job or. It might be a relationship or it might be um, their commute in the morning or, you know, whatever it is that's, that is present and not wanted. Yes. <laughs> right? I think, I think of resistance as there's something present that I don't want yes. and, I'm, and I'm pushing it away from myself. And I find that using breath to help me identify that mm-hmm. it, it become really to become intimate with it in whatever form it's it has whatever form it's taken yes that's, that is totally correct and we do this in the uh, yoga practice at least the way i teach okay so so help me and help us understand why the breath is a useful tool for that because well, it, doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't you know newtonian physics right the mechanics right. of it doesn't necessarily right, make sense right. So let's come back to the to the yoga practice. You you bending forward, and then you're realizing there is a big resistance physically, physical tightness, tension right. there. Right. So most often it is uncomfortable. Mm. So that by itself pushes us away because we somehow mentally set up not to want to experience pain or discomfort. We always want the good part. Right. Right. Um, and then. We, I teach my students to actually back off, you know, in terms of the yoga practice in the in the stretch you're in and the forward bend for in this case, and to just come back and going just as much in when and noticing when the first resistance comes mm-hmm. and see it actually rise rising the resistance, and then having the courage and the willingness to use the breath as the tool to presence yourself in those feelings, in those sensations. How do you do that? How, do you, how does one use the breath to bring presence? What is, it, why is it, what is it about the breath that makes that work? Often when, you, when I, I have discovered 
that when there are circumstances in life that are not going my way and I really don't like being there or certain things I hate or right. don't want, right. the breath adjusts to that. The breath actually comes to to a to a shallow breath or to a to a holding of the breath. It's almost like the breath reflects my mental state not wanting to experience that, not want to be there. Yeah, that's, that makes sense? that's actually very interesting. And, you know, the, and I so I turn it around, finding yeah. just enough, not too much, right? Yeah, right, right. And, and, and not too much and not too little. That's, that's the nice thing about the yoga practice and the difficulties in the poses that it has, it is the medium, it is the anchor to keep you present. And then the breath is showing you how much present am I, what is going on here. The breath is much easier to recognize what its pattern does than the mind. You know, ever since I have got connected to the breath as... um, a tool for body awareness. I've been fascinated by it as a very unique character of the human experience. It's a, it's like it's this thing that do, that is on autopilot, right? It works automatically. Well, thanks, otherwise. <laughs> right, 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 right. It works automatically. Right. Um, but it doesn't have to work automatically. You can actually like it's it's way harder to get control of your heartbeat or your digestion than it is to get a hold of your breath. And, well, actually, and through controlling the breath, you will get control of the heartbeat. So, so the but the breath is the one that we can get to, sort of almost without training. We can hold our breath. You know, kids hold their breath from the you know when they're little. And you go underwater, you can hold your breath. You can change that. Mm-hmm. There is a difference now, but. Between just altering your breath or holding the breath and experiencing what you're doing with your breath, and and that's that's what's so cool about it is to me there's this it's it's available it's the one thing that's obviously available always for there. us to yes and you're, we're always breathing it's always free available too and it's free <laughs> right and yet it has this and it has this automatic process. But it doesn't. But we can then bring our intention to it and have dramatic change, mm-hmm. affect dramatic change to our breath. And the other part of this, which I find really fascinating, is that when you think about your breath, it's harder. But when, for me, when I think about managing my breathing, it's harder. When I feel my breathing, it becomes effortless. And mm-hmm. I and I just wonder. You know, I'm sure it's going to be years of exploration. Why? Why is it easy to feel my breathing and hard to think about my breathing? Because I think that when you think about your breath, then it is your mind doing the breath. Mm-hmm. And when you're more in the bodily experience of the breath and let the mind be on the side or behind you, then then you are more in one with the breath. The mind is kind of cutting in between. So so it, the breath is... Would you say that the breath is closer to the body than it is to the mind? Well, they actually say, 
Yeah, I think I would say that. And they also say that the press is the doorway into the mind. Why do they say that? Because the way mind is not just the thinking, mind is also feeling. Okay, I they don't. Go to, yeah. They go together. I don't. I don't. I don't. They don't go together for me. <laughs> I think of I. Well, I, it's, it's, they go together in the way that you feel. So you have some sensations in the body, mm-hmm. but in the same time you have a story to what you feel. That becomes then more like an emotion rather than a feeling. Right. Okay. And so it's the story that feeds the emotion. And the breath and, is the and gateway. The sto- and the story, whatever your story is, whatever your emotion is, is is mirrored in the breath. And when we change the breath into a more vital breath, then we affect the way we think and we affect the way we feel. Okay, this this bears repeating again. The story affects our breathing. Yes. And vice versa. If we yes, choose to breathe differently, yes, we right. can affect the story. Also, our body. So, uh, if yeah. we sit all day, that affects the breathe, the breath, right? Or if we move a lot, we have a much different breath. So, what we do and how we move. If we move fast, if you run fast, the breath goes fast. If we go gentle... It, it's almost like you can't... There are some stories, there are some emotional states that require certain kinds of breath in order to experience. And if your body is not posturally capable, either due to atrophy or disease or whatever, then you're not going to find the breath that leads you or supports you in those emotional states. In other words, those stories don't become alive for you because your breath isn't present. Yeah, but the stories or the emotions are also embedded in the body. Okay. So it's all, it's all it's everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Whatever we think, whatever we feel is colored in the way we breathe. It's also stored in our memory, deep down at the bottom of our minds. It's also stored in our body tissues. That's why when you do body work and you open up and you go into areas that have been chronically tight or or not functioning right, if you go there, there is you will maybe reveal a story when we bring up a feeling. Right, right. An and then state. when that comes up, right, then we have the willingness, and sometimes we need somebody being with us and holding space for us to be willing and, and strong enough to look at what comes and to feel what's being, what needs to be felt and to see what needs to be seen, which that creates openness and healing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So there's there's tremendous power in uh, I've experienced um, tremendous power in becoming really intimate with my breathing. How how do you would you describe the power that's available or accessible through the breath? Well, to me, the direct and easiest way is to have the breath as the tool of presence of being here in this moment and realizing what I'm feeling, realizing what I'm thinking. So that's the way I use the breath pretty much all the time. Mm. A tool to check in, what am I doing with my breathing? You know, am I holding? You know, am I tightening? Do I have a shallow breath? And then see the relationship between what I'm doing. 
right. and how I'm okay. breathing and what is my story and how I'm feeling. And because it's, it's, it's as I said before, it is all all colored and all shaped in a sim- similar way. Sometimes it's easier to go into the body, and sometimes I stay with my breath. Sometimes I check in what my mind is saying, what mm. story is I'm repeating myself, what is my emotional feeling right now. This is this is the there are the tools to 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 work with. Mm. They're definitely all connected, <laughs> definitely That's, all related to one another. Yes, right. I like that the breath. You know, I often tell people, you're going to breathe anyway. That's right. You might as well. Better. Use it in some, you know, use it as an asset. Use it as leverage to enhance your life. Right. You, you know, it, it, it is. It is a way to move you forward, or into a greater openness, or into a greater capacity, or into more energy. It is also a way into getting in touch with old emotions, old or present dysfunctional patterns. Mm. So it's a huge tool. Yeah. Yeah, you have um, you introduced me to through one of your classes uh, to the concept of the bandhas. Yes. Right, and in particular Udiana Banda. Right. But there are three of them. Can you share what what are they for and how do they work? Well, bandhas are what makes a yoga practice become a yoga practice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could say it could do the same. Say this, I could so, say the same to the breath. Hmm. If, you, if you do yoga and you're not breathing, then it's just gymnastics, it's not really yoga, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's or in a workout, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's not yoga because it's, yoga requires yoga requires everything everything together. So the bandhas are often described as locks, but you know, whenever, whenever we translate something from ancient traditions like Ayurveda or yoga, we are always limited when we find the word for that. Yeah. Right. So what I like to see it more is like if you think about an irrigation system out in the fields, and then you lock somewhere the water flow. You lock it so the water can flow in a different direction. Oh, okay. That's what the bandhas do to the prana. Oh, so it's a series, uh, it's three gates for redirecting and right. rechanneling prana. Right. So in the yoga world, they talk about energy as, they talk about five major types of branas that live in our body. Ooh, okay. And according to these energies, every energy is uh, is related to certain functional. So uh, to make that really not too confusing... Is there is a, an energy that lives from the from the in the lower body in the lower belly and it governs all the things that move out of the body with going to the bathroom, mm. child delivery, mm. uh, menstruation, and then there is an energy that is lives in the upper chest and that brings energy into the body. So one energy goes downward mm. and the other energy is more like an upward moving. Okay. So the bandhas are meant to redirect that energy. So because the energy that we that moves down and out the body is if there is too much of it, it actually leaks out our our energy. Mm. So the bandhas have 
the goal to bring the energy back upwards that normally goes down mm. and bring the energy that goes usually upwards to bring it back down. Okay, so you, in a sense it's an exercise in reversing the flow Right. Of the typical of the typical direction. Right. Also said that the 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 root banda, mula banda called, is meant to uh, close all the openings in the in the in the lower body, so the 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 the, uh, the prana can't escape the body. So we want to keep the bar, the prana within the body, and we want to actually bring it into the spine, because when the prana goes through the spinal column, then there is some ultimate pranic awakening possible. Mm. Okay. And then the, then there is this banda which sits in the throat, called throat lock or the jalandhara banda, which closes the throat so the energy doesn't go into the head. We mm-hmm. want to bring it then down. Mm-hmm. And then we have a banda in the belly. It's called Uriyana banda, which is to bring the two energies together into the belly and transform it okay. and create energy and okay. create fire. And okay. Because the more energy and fire we have in our belly, the more the better our digestion is. Ayurvedic people actually say uh, people who have good health, they have a good fire, they have a good digestion. Mm. They're really big on getting our digestive right. And even now in the West, we're talking about it, how a lot of diseases starting starting in our belly and our oh, digestive yeah. system. Yeah, yeah. So Uriyana Banda is the one that I'm focusing on, as you may know, um, because it does create heat. It does build this energy. It does helps us to get the elimin- elimination right. It helps us uh, to burn toxins, what the, you call in Ayurveda Ama, and doesn't refer only to toxins that we carry in our organs and in all our our guts. It's also mental and emotional toxins. Hmm. So this, the books and the teachers say we need a lot of energy if we want to go on any spiritual path because there might be just a lot of rocks coming in our ways that we have to clean up and work through. So for so, that, we need to increase our energy. Right. So the So the, the fire helps burn impurity. So if you're living in a toxic environment, either physically or emotionally, uh, it's good to have a lot of fire so that you can burn it away. Right. And Uriyana Banda is one of the ways to build right. the fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And and we do, in America, we live in a pretty toxic environment. Maybe, yeah, by now, I think, in the whole world. Yeah, yeah that's probably true, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Is it, right. it is one is this one way to work with yeah. the energy. There's tons of different ways of building more energy, purifying our, our energy, and also not to waste energy. Yeah, and the and the uh, circulating of the energy up the spine is an invitation to a kundalini experience, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Right. What are the? You said there were five different kinds of prana. Yes. <laughs> Can you share any a little bit about them? So there is this 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 apana energy, and then there is the uh, um, brana energy that lives in the upper body. The apana energy lives in the lower body. Then we have an energy that lives in the center of the belly. Then we have an energy that is outwards, that's mm-hmm. going everywhere. Yeah. 
And then there's a circulation. There's another energy. Something is there a head energy? Yes, right. Udana energy that goes from the from the throat upwards. Mm, okay. Yeah, and they are they actually. They all have different functions. If, yeah, and I think I think intuitively we can imagine we can sort I can sort of experience the natural likelihood that that's the case. You know, it's, it feels if you like, think about what energy, how energy moves, right? How does it? move in the in the universe or in 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 the field and around us you know it can go down it can go up it can go in it can go out and mm. it can be everywhere right mm. it's kind yeah. of yeah. kind of natural that way interesting and how did how does the, your your practice of uh of yoga and working with prana how does it contrast with tai chi and qigong how are they similar and how are they different is it just a cultural distinction? Well, my training in in Qigong was about a certain type of Qigong, which is called fire Qigong, or they call it a golden Qigong training, which was meant to do certain fire exercises, more rigorous exercises, to build up the energy in the body. And why did you pursue that? What was of interest? Because my my dear husband is uh, did did this when I met him, and um, he uh, thought it would be really helpful for my own energetic field uh, to build up the energy. Because I'm working with people, I'm being a body worker, so mm. having enough energy and understanding about energy and building up a reservoir of energy in all the different part body parts. Mm. Uh, was a very helpful tool. So we, for instance, we practiced for ten months only on the uh, abdomen area, mm. and we used meditation, we used visualization, and we used um, pushing and using objects and hitting ourselves and increasing that with time, building that way an energetic pool. Wow! Okay. It was very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. Um, so that's that uh, relates to uh, the. Uh, utility of the Uddiyana Bandha to in some ways, fire. yes, yeah. yes, yeah, in yeah. some ways. Yeah. But yeah. I always don't like to don't like to co- combine yeah. <laughs> or compare. Uh, compare. Why not? Uh, in the beginning, when I started, when I did my shiatsu training, I I studied Chinese medicine a little bit, and it's a huge thing. Mm. And it takes a lifetime to study Chinese medicine. And then I, when I got a little more into yoga, I, I studied, started to study Ayurveda. And there's lots of controversies, lots of, you know, oh, like, really? like, like, yeah, like for instance, if you have like acupuncture uses meridians, right, where they put the the needles right. in. Yeah. Now yeah. they call them meridians in acupuncture, and they're talking about in yoga nadis. Yeah. Now they're not the same. They're not the same lines. Some mm. of them are same, some of them are different. Now that can be a little confusing. So it's not so always, you know. I have actually a book that combines the the um, the acupuncture points with the points they call them marma in Ayurveda. And so there's only 108 marma points, but there's 365 acupuncture points, no, I... and some of them are the same. And some, some are extra, are so yeah. it's it's it is it's different, you know. In 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 Chinese medicine, the the acupuncture points are very very subtle. 
in the marma coins, they can be sometimes like four inches big. Yeah. So they have a different model to to look at them. You know, I, part of this I think is uh, that we we like to think of things as objects, as as like I say as nouns, right? That there's these fixed things. Mm-hmm. But really, everything is a process, and everything is a right. conversation, and so and it's always changing. It's too. always changing, and so so you know you it, the conversation that you have with nadis in Ayurvedic medicine is a different conversation than you'd have with meridians in Chinese medicine, and so they can be very different because you're actually because they're not they're, it's not about a a fixed. Thing. It's about it's a, a best, thing in the context thing. of. It's a Western thing. We want to have it. We want to know it. Yeah. We want to give it a name. Yeah. We want to touch it. We want to see it. We want to make it concrete, and then we like to actually like to hold on to it. Yeah, which which, which doesn't, work. doesn't work. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> okay, so we're just about out of time. Is there? Any last thought you'd like to share with our listeners about the the nature of prana and the nature of yoga and? I like to encourage all the listeners to pay more attention how they breathe. You know, I I tell my clients, you know, they sit all day. Some of my clients sit all day, and I say, well, take take a moment, take as many moments, you know, and it becomes an increasingly deeper practice, bringing awareness into how you're breathing, and then once in a while taking a bigger breath. And especially in 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 stressful areas, in, in 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 stressful moments, when we intuitively and directly want to react and want to do something, take a moment, take a moment and take a breath. It will often, with practice, it will turn around your your attitude. It will turn around the next action that you want to do. Mm-hmm. So pay a little more attention to the breath. Take a take a few minutes a day. Something I really think we need in our society to, to become more still, to do less, mm. just to sit or stand and breathe and, and breathe. just experience breathing and, and, and developing a, a more a more closeness to our breath. Yeah, more intimate relationship with our yeah. breath. That's something that has been incredibly powerful for me. So yes. that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. And if folks want to get to know you, and your work a little bit better, where do we direct them? You can easily contact me by email, marianne.pathways at gmail.com. Okay, that's marianne.pathways at gmail.com. Okay, and? And I also teach three, four classes at Ocean Yoga in Pacifica, and I teach also at Yoga to the People in Berkeley. Okay, and uh, Ocean Yoga is oceanyoga.com? Yes. And Pathways to the People, is, is there a website for that? Uh, no, it's hard to find me on that website because I don't teach the same style that Yoga to the People teaches. I teach a mindful flow. Ah, okay. Whereas Yoga to the People is, is uh, has their own style. I just use their facility. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, 
Contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you're enjoying the returning sun, the heart of winter, and the prospects for spring. Being open to what's happening right now and to what's being offered to you helps you take the very best from the present moment. Open up your breath, too, so that you can experience that openness physically. It's grounding, healing, and feels surprisingly good. You'll be glad you did. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.